In Exodus chapter 2, we're going to read the first 10 verses. It says, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. So as I was looking at this passage, there are so many pieces here that I have questions about. One is, has Pharaoh's daughter ever done this before? Like, she just finds a baby and says, ah, that one's for me, and takes him home. Secondly, were other people doing that with babies? Were, were there other people saying, oh, there's a Hebrew child's baby here? Like, were, the, were people disagreeing with Pharaoh? When Pharaoh made his decree, were there a lot of people that said, that is not okay, and I'm not going along with it, and they said, bring me your boy child, and I will raise him in an Egyptian home. Were they doing that? No, none of this is mentioned but because of the ease with which Pharaoh's daughter says, oh, this is one of the Hebrews' children, um, I'll raise him up, I'll pay someone to do that. Like, she just does this so easily, as, as, at least the way we read it. Now, it might not have been as easy. Um, anytime there's a screaming child involved, it's not as easy as it reads, right? So, but there is this, so there is this, that I have a few questions like that where I'm thinking, how is it that she just goes from, she's out bathing by the river, and now the, the, the Nile River itself, there is something about the river itself that played into the gods and the goddesses of Egypt. So there's, if you go and you try to find, uh, like I did some, some searches just saying, the primary gods of Egypt, you know, and, and it's like, there are so many gods for Egypt, and it's the ancient gods, and the the the... And so I was hoping that you'd find like this one very clear thing uh, of a God connected with the Nile that would make so much sense with this and with the, the uh, because I've read sometimes where people have drawn dots between the different plagues that came between different gods. And so I know that there is some correlation there, but what was frustrating for me was how many of their um, gods actually connect with the Nile in some way. And there was not one clear like the Nile itself. And so like even her going down to bathe, because that was a question I had. And so maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there is something, you know, because she's going down to bathe in the Nile. Her maidens are walking on the, on the shore. And so I was trying to understand even if that is like, is that significant? Like, does it even matter that why are the maidens walking along the shore? Why is she bathing? And they are not. Is this, is this only the privilege of, of royalty? Like what, what's you? I don't think so, but it raises the question, right? So I was, as I read through there, I had a lot of different questions. But then I, the one thing that, 
that I found fascinating was the fact of how Moses comes from the safety of his mother's house. He's put out on the water, which seems to not, in my, just my way of thinking, it's not the safest place to put a child. And so then he comes from the water to the house of Pharaoh. And then years later, he goes from the house of Pharaoh out, not through the Nile, but through the Red Sea, through the water to escape from the house of Pharaoh. So you have this water playing in. And, and so as I was thinking, you know, in, in many of our types and shadows in the Old Testament, you have the pictures. Uh, water usually has something to do with doctrinal beliefs or teachings or, or like it's not just water. It's, it's, it's like if you think of word, um, it's more like words. And so there's a, it's a shadow, a type of that. So I'm thinking, okay, so what sort of doctrine of, of, of Egypt is God using? Because remember when the dragon in Revelation spews out water after um, the child of the woman and is trying to destroy the, the boy child of the woman and it says that the earth absorbed the water? And so there's, a, there's something about this water that I think is fascinating to even think about and talk about, but there's some, if you think in terms of water being the, the doctrines of this world, there are so many times, uh, like right now, um, like this, this will not seem like it applies at all, but okay. We had, the feminist movement comes along and recognizes some real problems in our society, tries to address them, addresses them in a strange, wrong way in a few places, right? But they're on their way. They have their agenda. Well, at the same time that the feminist movement is coming along with its agenda, there are other agendas playing. And so right now, we have this situation where in women's swimming this week, a man who says he's a woman actually won the women's swimming and took gold first place. And so you have this strange situation where I'm suddenly going, well, shouldn't feminism be, feminism being standing up for the women? Like, what is this? Like, I, like, I get it if you're saying male dominate everything, but now you're saying if a male says he's a woman, he can also dominate the women's sports. Like, this is just, is really weird. And so in my mind, here's, here's what's happening. You've got the waters or the doctrines of the earth and they're canceling each other out because they're fighting each other. And so suddenly it becomes a moot point where maybe or maybe not, I don't even have to address that when I am proclaiming who Christ is because everyone's looking at it going, that is so messed up, is so broken, what do you got? And I might not even have to say anything about how that is broken because everyone already knows that it's broken. And so that is part of what I see when I think of the, the waters of the world or the earth itself soaking up the water that the dragon is spewing because the, the water that the dragon is spewing, here the dragon, the old serpent, the devil, he is so opposed to everything, including himself, that even his own lies attack each other. And so the earth itself starts soaking up the lies of the enemy. So I find that just fascinating. I don't feel like I have fully understood it or grasped it, but I, I see these little imperfect examples of it where, where you have a lie of the enemy over here and you have a lie of the enemy over here. And next thing you know, these two are canceling each other out and becoming ineffective because of the other lie and the way they interact. And so it makes room for someone to come in with a plain, simple, 
gospel truth and say there is actually a God in heaven who actually has a hierarchy of things and you can actually read his word, know what his heart is. And when you do what he says, it actually protects every person in our society and actually helps each one of us thrive. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ is that we can all come to him and we can all be rescued from our sin. And we don't have to say, well, let's sacrifice you on that person's sin. We don't have to have any of that because there are no, there are, there's none of this, this lie trumps this lie for this time. There's none of that. It's just a plain, simple gospel that we can come to Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, all things are new. And so suddenly someone who's been walking in the wilderness and has been inundated with all the lies says, that is so simple. I wish I could believe it. And then after a while, as the truth is being explained, they say, that is so simple, I have to believe it. And so there is a, there's a certain sense in which, a, from an apologetics viewpoint, we're always going out and trying to point out the brokenness of the world, but there's a certain sense in which we don't even have to point out the brokenness because it's just so prevalent and so obvious. And so, you know, when you, if you take a woman, a girl who says, well, I am 100% feminist, and then she's trying to win the swimming thing, and suddenly she can't win because of this other thing. You, you see there, there's an ideology that is clashing here that cannot coexist, and there's going to have to be, something's going to have to give. And so the mutual respect that is desired can't, you know, the whole, the coexists idea in, from the earthly perspective, from the waters below, if you go back to Genesis, the waters above and the waters below, if you go back to that, you look at the waters below, the waters below are in a constant turmoil and there is no coexistence. And part of it is this, we are talking about a kingdom of heaven and this is talking about kingdoms on the earth and you're trying to preserve kingdoms on the earth. And as long as you're trying to preserve a kingdom, I don't care if it's a church or a ministry, if you're more interested in preserving something here on earth than you are in preserving the kingdom of heaven, there's going to be so much turmoil and so much chaos that you're going to have to deal with that it's going to be a real frustration. And so this is, this is one of those eternal things where uh, the old poem about the God's word being the anvil and the hammers of the, of the, the uh, agnostics banging on it. You know, the hammers all passed away and there's the anvil still standing. I should have brought that poem if I want to reference it, but uh, many of you have heard it. There is something eternal here that we're dealing with. So anyway, before I go too deep into this water thing, I was curious if anyone else had done it. I went and looked. I found one reference of someone else writing uh, in the in the early church, not more recently. More recently, I think there are more references where people discuss the, what the Nile actually means in, in comparison and stuff. But early on, we have this Ephraim, the Syrian, who writes, and he says, just as Pharaoh was drowned in those very waters in which he had drowned the infants. Now, the reality is the Pharaoh that was drowning the infants is actually dead already by the time he, the next Pharaoh, it's the, his son or the next Pharaoh that actually drowns in the Red Sea. So if you think about a Pharaoh, so a Pharaoh of Egypt is drowning Hebrew boys in the water and then later the Pharaoh himself actually drowns. So it's not the same Pharaoh. He makes it sound in his commentary like it's the same one, but it's actually a different one. But he says, just as Pharaoh was drowned in those very waters in which he had drowned the infants, so too David removed Goliath's head with that very sword with which he had destroyed many. Moses divided the waters through the symbol of the cross, while David laid Goliath low with the symbol of the stone. 
Our Lord condemned Satan by the word of his mouth when the latter was tempting him, and Pharaoh was drowned by the waters with which he had drowned others. And so there is this, this is an irony of God's providence and how God interacts with us. So it's good to think of the irony and to think of that, you know, even though it's a different Pharaoh, it's still good to think about how water itself becomes a salvation to some, but it's a destruction to others. And so even to this day, there are things in your life that are meant to destroy you, that because you serve a mighty God, because you're a child of the king, those very things that are meant to destroy you will actually turn into not just harmless, but they will be the thing that rescues you. And so God will use the very thing that the enemy tries to use against you. He will use that to deliver you. And this is important for us to remember. So when we see the enemies lining up and saying, here's how we're going to destroy Christianity. Here's what we're going to do. As they are doing that, we can trust that in the very destruction that is being planned against the Christian family, somewhere in there is the very seed of its own destruction, and it too will destroy itself. For, so for instance, there are times when I look at the, uh, just the landscape of the Christian conservative homeschool movement that I know, and I will see here and here and here, I will see a few people who, are, who grew up in a Christian home, and now in their teens or in their 20s or somewhere, they have gone completely apostate. And they've gone completely away from everything they had learned. And as they go away, it seems so... Tr- tragic because it seems that they know the methodology and they know all the things over here. And so they're going to use that to turn back on the Christians themselves. And so you're, you're concerned, you're thinking, wow, we're training our children to think so they can attack us. Is this a good thing? And so as, we're, as you're thinking about that though, there's something that I have come to see. When that person grows up and is rejecting everything, it's usually because they have not received something that they need. So either they have not understood the love of God or they have not received the love of their families. There's been something lacking. Now, sometimes you look at it and say, well, the parents did everything. And say, so, yes, they might have. However, there is a certain amount of receiving that each individual person has to do. And so what we do is we continue to pray because when that person comes to a position, God is able to take the word of God that they knew from growing up and bring them back to himself. But what I want to point out is another thing that happens all the time. And that is this, you take someone who has grown up in the ranks of the enemy, who's grown up in Pharaoh's house. And as they've been growing up in Pharaoh's house, as they're looking around, they are trained and taught that we are wrong and that our ideology is wrong and that everything about what we're doing isn't right. And so as they're trained in all of that and they're trying to, to bring forth their militant purposes, one of the things that many of them are missing, for instance, if someone hates the family, can they truly love and nurture their own child? So in Pharaoh's case, if he is willing to kill the Hebrew baby boys, Is there love in Pharaoh's house? Is Pharaoh's daughter coming out and she sees a child and she says, you know, I never felt like I received the love and nurture of a father that I should have had, but I am going to give it to this child. I don't know this. This this is a question I'm asking because what I have seen in our culture is where you take someone who has been working in in the other forces that are trying to destroy the families and suddenly they say, 
this, I've just seen this beautiful vision of a family loving each other, and I want to be part of that. I'm sick of this. I want to be part of that. And they come to our side, right? And so it works both ways. The power of the cross and the power of the creator is on our side. The power of the truth is on our side. The power of love is on our side. The power of beauty is on our side. And so what will happen at times is the Christian community will forget that we have been given the weapons of truth, of beauty, and of love, and we will take up the, the weapons that the world uses. And so we will be coming with reaction and a lot of other things, and we will be fighting as the world fights instead of fighting as the kingdom of heaven would fight. In other words, we forget that we're part of a kingdom that has the most powerful weapons available, and we will be picking up the weapons, the inferior weapons of a kingdom here on earth, and we will be fighting with those, and, and, and then we will be frustrated because we feel like we're losing. So if you look at the issues that the moral majority was fighting in the 70s and 80s, and how many of those they lost, and how frustrated they are with it, with that, but then you look at the issue like right now, right now, Abortion in our country is at a point where, where it is becoming a huge issue. There are more people right now who are aware of what happens in the killing houses of our nation than there have been up until this point. Up until now, it has been an easy issue to say, well, we care. do you care about women? Oh, yes, I care about women. Well, then you should do, uh, support this. And there's nothing known. But I remember like back 15 years ago, I saw a bumper sticker and it just said, abort 73. And I thought, what in the world is this? And it was, so I looked up, I went to Google because it was already, well, it was not Google at the time. I forget what I used. Um, dog pile, is that what I used? I forget. <laughs> I used something and I, I looked it up and then and I couldn't quite get where I wanted to go. And so later I saw it again and I saw it, it said .com. So I went abort73.com and it was just a website that explained with pictures what an abortion was. And that was the first, like, finally it made sense to me. It, it connected home to me. But it was just somebody saying, people need to know what we're talking about because we don't know because it's a taboo topic, right? And so in our society right now, there's a lot of things that feel like they're coming out and being bolder than ever. And I'm not saying that if we just do a few little things and pray in our closets that we'll immediately have everything right in our society again. But what I am saying is, look at this. The children of Israel, the Hebrews, can be in Egypt for quite some time. And there's somebody that says, you know, Pharaoh kind of doesn't like us. And everyone says, ah, I think he likes us. It's nice here. And, and, and someone says, I think Pharaoh really wants to destroy us. And the rest say, you know, I don't think he does. I mean, we are working for him after all. We're serving. He doesn't want to really hurt us. Not really. Like, he just needs to up production a bit. Like, it's, you know, I know it's hard. We're having to do all this work and everything. But it's, and so then suddenly Pharaoh says, kill all the Hebrew boys. And everyone says, oh, there is an enemy and he hates us. And so suddenly everyone's aware now. Now we have a different, there's something different happening. Because now it's not just someone saying this and someone saying that we've, we have heard the decree. We see the enemy marching boldly. And so now we have a decision that has to be made. The midwives have to make a decision. The Hebrews themselves have to make a decision. Are we complying or not? Are we going along with what we're going to do, How, with, with what he's saying we have to do or not? And so every Egyptian is having to decide. 
this Hebrew that I've lived next to all my life, this Hebrew that I've worked with all my life, this Hebrew that helped me when I needed help way back, am I going to destroy his family or am I going to protect him? What am I going to do? Because suddenly battle lines are drawn and there's a very clear problem. So this, is what, this has often happened, not just in our society, but in societies around the world. There'll be an uneasy shifting of thoughts and values and there comes a day when people say, I'm sick of it, I'm tired of it, I'm not doing that. And so you get to, to these glorious moments like, um, I think it was Romania and Bulgaria, both of them had this moment where their communistic leadership just kind of leaves the country suddenly, quietly, because they're scared of the people. And so if you would have told those people a week before, two weeks before, this is how it's gonna end out, this is what's gonna happen, the people would have been, I don't see that happening. Like, look at them, they're still parading their soldiers with all the guns, they're still doing all, I don't think this is gonna just quietly go away. And then suddenly something snaps, and what's happening? They're trying to get out of the country. Now, some of them got captured at the border and got uh, judged violently by their people. The, the reality with Pharaoh is that as long as everything kind of looks normal, even as he's amping up the pressure on the Hebrews, everybody kind of can convince themselves that it's somewhat normal. And then suddenly he says, kill the Hebrew boys. When he says that, there is no more questioning his motives. Now he is definitely in the wrong. So when Pharaoh's daughter comes out, finds the Hebrew boy and says, I'm going to take care of this one. That means that Pharaoh's daughter has seen Pharaoh in his most private life and has decided that she disagrees with him so much, she's going against his very word and she's going to raise a Hebrew boy. So now this begs a lot of other questions for me. He is raised for a season of time by his mother and then Pharaoh's daughter brings him in and suddenly he is being paid for, well, even while he is a baby, Pharaoh's money through Pharaoh's daughter is going to Amram and Jochebed, I believe it is. And they're taking care of Moses. When he comes to Pharaoh's house, he is sitting in Pharaoh's, at Pharaoh's table and eating. He is going to school and being educated by Pharaoh's money, full ride scholarship. So you have Pharaoh, the sworn enemy of the Hebrew boys, but he is also the protector of his daughter and the provider for his daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter takes on the provider and protectorship of Moses. And so Moses grows up at the table of his enemy Moses is eating at Pharaoh's table. He's educated by Pharaoh, or is he? And here's the moment we have to understand something. God wanted to educate Moses in Egypt. So he said, what better place to educate the deliverer of my people than in the house of his enemy? So he takes Moses and he gives Amram and Jochebed, and he gives them this wisdom. They built this little ark thing. They put Moses in it. They put Miriam watching, and they put him in the Nile water, in the river, and then here comes Pharaoh's daughter. She sees him. She takes him, and he ends up in her house, in and Pharaoh's house, and all of this is in preparation for something that, that Moses himself feels. We see him as an adult when he goes out there and he ends up killing that one Egyptian. You see him beginning to feel he knows something is supposed to be happening. He's supposed to be delivering his people. He doesn't understand it yet. And it takes a long time in the wilderness. Eventually he comes back and he has finally figured it out. And so 
this concept that God would take the person that he loves, that he has chosen for his work, and put him right in the middle of the worst place is a, a strange thing. And yet, it's a powerful thing. Chris Austin wrote, and that you may learn this. Pharaoh commanded the infants to be cast into the river. Unless the infants had been cast forth, Moses would not have been saved. He would not have been brought up in the palace. When he was safe, he was not in honor. When he was exposed, then he was in honor. But God did this to show his riches of resource and contrivance. So think about this for a moment. Let's say that Pharaoh had never come out in such opposition against the Hebrews. Let's say he just had an uneasy slavery with them the whole time, but he had never declared all out, let's kill the Hebrew boys. If he had never said that, Moses' parents would never have been squeezed into this place to put Moses into that position that made him discoverable by Pharaoh's daughter. If he hadn't been discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, he would not have been raised in the palace. And when the day came that he had to go address the king, Pharaoh, would we have had a humble Moses? Or like the reality, he knew what was in that palace. If there was anything, when Moses is coming back across the desert to come back and Aaron comes out to meet him, when he's on his way back to speak to Pharaoh, Moses knows the customs of Egypt. He understands all of this and he more than anyone else understands that it's going to take an act of God to get those people, his people out of Egypt. Everyone else hears, oh, Moses is coming back. He's going to go talk to Pharaoh. So as they're making bricks in the brick kiln, they're saying, hey, Moses is going to go talk to Pharaoh. And so suddenly people's hopes are being brought up. They're thinking, ah, we have a deliverer. We have someone. Moses is going, you do not have a deliverer. Do you know what I'm trying to do? This is ridiculous. I'm only going because when I was with the presence of God in the wilderness and the fire was burning there, the urgency and the holiness of Almighty God is what's driving me and I am going because he told me to go. I even asked him to send Aaron with me to speak because I'm scared of speaking in Pharaoh's presence. And so there is something here where God said, in order for me to have a deliverer for my people, I need to raise Moses in Pharaoh's court. And so he does. We look at it and say, how is it possible for Pharaoh to raise a Hebrew boy? Because that's what, and if his daughter is doing it, so maybe he doesn't see him every day, but if his daughter is doing it, that's where Pharaoh's resources and money are going. She can't hide this from him forever. Pharaoh needs to know that this is happening. And so she said, I drew him out of the water. God said, Moses is a good name for him because I'm drawing him out of a people and I'm going to set him up as something. And we see him bringing the people out. So look at this for a moment. Let's just look at several other scriptures and just consider this concept that God would prepare something for us in the presence of our enemies. If you look in Proverbs 13, 22, so it's Proverbs 13, 22. Proverbs 13, 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. 
And so this is just, it's just a quick little proverb. We see it in a few other places. Uh, if you go to Proverbs 28, verse 8, you'll see a similar idea. So Proverbs 28, verse 8. It says, one who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. And so there is this concept that there are wicked men who are raising and collecting wealth. And God is saying, you're raising it not for yourself, but you're getting it for the other, for someone else, someone who will actually be righteous. If you go on, keep going, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Verse 26, it says, For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So Solomon goes one more and says, it's God is assigning to the wicked people, to the sinner, to actually gather and collect so that he can give it to the one who is good before God. If you go look in Job, so now let's go backwards again to Job. Job chapter 27, uh, starting in verse 13. So Job 27, verse 13. It says, This is the portion of a wicked man with God, and the heritage of oppressors, or the heritage... Great. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. Though he, weep, he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. And so this is a concept that Job is talking about, and when Job is bringing this up as an argument for the righteousness of God, as a reason to say, look at God, he is right and he's good and we can trust him. And he's also using it to then say, look at me, I am innocent. Um, and so he's, he's having this whole discussion still with his friends. But the concept that I, I see in all of these with, with a wicked man piling up treasure to be given to a righteous man, to be given to a good man, is that, there, that, that God in heaven is looking at everyone that's out here. And so if you have a wicked man, you know, every one of us has been given a gift. There's the natural giftings that we are given, the bent that we are given of our personality and of who we are. And then when we are born again in Christ, we are often given a spiritual gift that rounds out our natural gift. Sometimes we never discover those two. Sometimes we never discover what our natural gift was. Um, I've known people who just seem to have a knack for making money. They just do it. They just, they turn around and they get, they get rich. Like that's just what happens. Like they have an idea and it works and they have another idea and it works. And I look at it and go, what are you doing? Like, I, I don't get it, but it's just, they have, they have been given something that's a natural ability. Something about the way they see the world allows them to do this. So you take that person, he comes to Christ and he's born again, and now he is also given some other gift. And whether it's the gift of helps or the gift of giving or the gift of, of, of administration, whatever it is, that gift will work together with the natural gift that he was born with. And he is able to bless not only his friends and his neighbors, but he's able to bless the kingdom of heaven and to strengthen the very kingdom. And so there is a reality in which Pharaoh comes into his kingdom and God created Pharaoh. 
And so God looking at Pharaoh says, here is a person I made. Here is what I made him for. And then if Pharaoh never comes to the Lord and never submits to the God of heaven, then he is stuck with only his natural giftings. And so there is a, in the, in the passage that we just read in Job, it says that his, when he, basically no one mourns, even when he dies, his widow doesn't even mourn him. She says like, whew, that was close. I thought I was going to get killed by the guy and now he's dead. I'm so glad I'm, I'm free from that, right? And so there's a certain level of when you have an unsanctified rich man or an unsanctified person, whatever their gifts were, it's hurting them. It hurts their family. Occasionally, you'll see someone who doesn't seem to fear God or anybody, and they have learned how to operate in their gift so well, and that you look at them and say, wow, they're so successful. But usually, when you look at someone who is, is very successful, and you look at the trail that's left behind them, you will find pain and hurt and broken households and other things behind there. And you say, wow, what happened? They needed the other part. They needed, God had created them not just to live for themselves, but God had created them for a purpose for the kingdom. And if they never find that, then there's only this broken tale to be told, but they can be very, very wealthy because uh, riches, money is only one aspect of the wealth of the kingdom. It's only one part. There's so much more wealth that is available. And so if you look at relationships, if you look at people, like I look at my little, you know, my family photo um, that I've used a lot of times, uh, just the, the boys, you know, if I'm with my boys and now I have Corey too, and I think about that and I feel wealthy because of my sons. And it's, it's, it's a blessing because I, I'm looking at them. I have no idea what they're going to end up end out to go and do with their lives. But it's so beautiful for me now to see them and to think how, you know, when I was their age and I was looking at the, uh, my cousins and other people around me and, and like the, the, the wealth of relationship I had and now to see them in that same position and they're getting ready to launch. And I just think of all the places. So take my grandfather, for example, and you say, where did all of his grandchildren go? And you look at what all the grandchildren are doing. And true, some of them are only serving themselves. They're not serving the Lord. But many of them are serving the Lord and it's beautiful to see what's happening. So I think of myself, I'm not a grandfather yet, but once these guys have children, what happens? Where, this is a wealth that is, that is part of the kingdom. It's so beautiful and I love it. So we have financial wealth. We have the relational and the actual people wealth. We have spiritual impact wealth. So every one of us is able to do something that will impact someone else's life and that will cause them to grow rich toward God. And so this, this, this influence wealth that we have for the kingdom is powerful. And it's not something to be made to, to, to ignore because if we only work for the physical wealth or the, the riches of finances, we might miss out on the riches of influence. Now, there are some people who have been crippled because God gave them giftings over here and they've abandoned those and are only trying to use giftings over here and they're frustrated their entire life because they haven't figured out how to use their natural giftings to work with their kingdom of heaven giftings. So this is important that we actually ask the creator, you made me for a reason and a purpose. You gave me strengths. What are those and how do you want me to operate? That's important that we do that because I feel like Pharaoh's daughter, not understanding everything, she looks at this situation and she says, I would rather protect a Hebrew boy that I found in the rushes of the Nile than I would please my father and kill that boy. Because my father gave out the decree to everyone and said, I mean, it says in, um, in chapter one, verse 22, 
Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. And she goes against that very decree of her father. So this is a big deal. So the concept is that Pharaoh, and, and I want to even go back and say, well, is this the first Pharaoh after the Pharaoh that knew Joseph? Because when I look at the timeline, it could be, this could be the second Pharaoh after Joseph. I'm not positive how this all plays out. I don't know how old the Pharaoh was that he served in originally. So when I think of Joseph serving the Pharaoh of Egypt, collecting all of this wealth, creating these taxes, setting up this, all this thing where it made the Pharaoh extremely powerful, and now suddenly this Pharaoh is taking that power that was given him by a man of God, so by God himself through his man, Joseph, and he's taking that power and wealth and saying, let's kill the Hebrew children, and suddenly God says, no, oh, no, 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 I brought my children here because I was going to protect them, I was going to prepare them, and I was going to grow them into a people to come back to the promised land. So you look at it, and we can look at it several different ways. We can say, okay, if it would have been completely comfortable in Egypt, then maybe the children of Israel would never have been felt forced to leave. And that may be a way, I, I've heard that said multiple times, but I think there's something deeper here. If the people of Israel had been responding to God in a healthy way, he could have just blessed Egypt and they could have left and gone up and it could have been like it was when Solomon got married and, and, and was building the temple where Egypt is actually more or less friendly with God's people because they're up there, we're down here, we, we don't really want each other's land. I mean, the Egyptians really don't want all the grazing lands and the olive plants of, up there. They're quite happy on the delta of the, of the Nile. That's, they're, they're happy there. They don't need to expand. They weren't like the Babylonian empire who was like, oh, bring it all to me. They weren't like that. They were just happy to be who they were. So it's possible that they could have had a good relationship all the way through. We don't know all the different things. We just know Something happened that caused this Pharaoh to not fear God and to not truly understand who the Hebrews were. And the next Pharaoh after him understood even less because he was willing to go up against Moses and the Hebrew children. And so here we have the scenario. Moses is sitting and eating at Pharaoh's table. And it reminded me of Psalm 23 where it says, the Lord is our shepherd. And then we have that thing where it says, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So I want you to think about this for a moment and think to yourself, who are my worst enemies? Now, in a kingdom of heaven perspective, people everywhere are not actually our enemies. They are victims of our enemy. They have been taken captive by our enemy. So we are trying to rescue people everywhere. And so when we see a... a a situation like our governor right now, or we see other, you know, scenarios all around our country, we can look at people and, and on a kingdom of America perspective, we say, there's the enemy. They want to destroy America. They do not understand righteousness and, and honor, and they don't get it. But from a kingdom of heaven perspective, we look around and we see that same person. We say, that person has been taken captive by the enemy of God. And God wants to redeem and release that person from the captivity that they're in. So it's a complete different mindset. So there are times when your very desire to help and save your nation is going to keep you from understanding a deeper, bigger picture of what God might be wanting to do. Because when Moses shows up in Pharaoh's house, 
we can go, you know, Amram and his clan can say, um, my son has been kidnapped by Moses and he's being raised up in the, temp- in, the, in the temples of Egypt and in the, I don't want him to be raised like that. I want him to fear God. Look at him. He's up there. It's going to be destroyed. Let's raise a posse and let's go get, get all of your brick making tools. We're going to go and we're going to kill Pharaoh. We're going to do it now. So it could have. And Historically speaking, when we read of events like this, where a people group goes to rescue a child or a, a, a son that has been, we don't judge them harshly. We say, well, that makes sense. I get it. But in this case, I don't know what was going on with the Hebrews. They were already pretty beaten down a lot. They really needed a lot of help. They were very discouraged in many ways. They needed the word of the Lord. They more than, they, Moses Like God wasn't so desperate that he had to get them out through the Red Sea, but they, the children of Israel, needed to see the Red Sea. They needed to see that water being divided. They needed to see it because it was an opportunity for their faith to grow. Now, for many of them, their faith grew some, but not fully, because when the 12 spies come back at the end of the book and they say, we can go, and they're like, oh no, I don't think we can because there are giants in the land over there. And so the, 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 the 10 spies are like, oh, it's bad. Let me tell you what I saw. And they start going through this whole thing. Well, so, so there's a, a series of events here that the people that are walking with Moses to escape out of, of, uh, ex, uh, of Egypt that can grow their faith or they can always say, well, Pharaoh fed Moses, Pharaoh educated Moses. But I think the proper perspective is to say God provided for Moses at Pharaoh's table. God educated Moses in Pharaoh's house. And so we get to this point where eventually it is the Lord, you know, here we can say uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter named Moses that he was the one she drew out of the waters. And we say, actually, God named Moses because he drew him out of the children of Israel who were in a position where their mindset was so beaten down by this time that they didn't even think it was possible to leave. Nobody was saying, shall we leave? They were just there. In fact, he had to be in the wilderness for a long time. And I don't know what God had to do to Aaron before Aaron finally goes, I wonder where a brother is and goes looking for him in the wilderness. Like, so, so the mindset of the people was not ready for a deliverer. Why is that? And I think part of it is, and this happens to us, when we look at the kingdoms of the earth and we see as the kingdoms of the earth set themselves, they set themselves against God, they set themselves against each other, they set themselves against the people of God. We see how the kings of the earth set themselves and we become so discouraged because we hear the words. This is very similar to the David and Goliath story where here are the armies of Israel under Saul. Saul is a warrior. Saul himself could be able to pray and go and take out Goliath. But no, Saul has been listening to the lies of the enemy as spoken by Goliath. Goliath, and he cannot go out. He is afraid to go out. And it's not until David comes in, and David has been spending time out in the woods, out in the fields with the sheep, and as he's been out there, he has not been hearing the voice of Goliath day after day after day after day. And so when he hears the voice of Goliath for the first time, he says, wait a minute, you're letting him say that kind of stuff? Like, that's not okay. And so for Moses to be raised up in a group of people who are being browbeaten and enslaved by Pharaoh causes, would, would cause him to be one more of them. He would have the same mindset, the same idea. And so what's fascinating to me is that God says, okay, first, I want you to go to the house of Pharaoh. Learn what you can learn there. All right. Now, 
He goes out, he sees the, the, his people, he sees them struggling. He's not ready yet because he goes in his own strength and kills that guy. And so then he goes into the wilderness and again, he spends all this time out there. Eventually, after he spent all this time in the wilderness and he's coming back, he's going, I've got to be right with God. I've, I am one of the chosen ones. This is what God asked of his people. And so the whole circumcision story that sometimes is kind of weird when you're reading through it, all of that happens and Moses comes back to Egypt, not as the son of Amram, not as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but he comes back as the child of the living God who spoke to him and he trusts that this is a true and living God and he comes right into that thing and he's able to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no and he says, well, then this is gonna happen. And so then he, this happens and he goes through this whole thing and eventually he's leaving and as they're going out, what is Moses doing at this point? He is not consulting the children, his, his, the children of Israel. He's not consulting what uh, Egypt is doing. He is literally just saying, Lord, you brought me here. Did you bring me here to kill me or what? And he keeps saying that in a way that when, I, when we read it, we're like, well, you're kind of disrespectful. But in a very real sense, in a um, George Mueller kind of way, uh, he is praying as a lawyer. He's going, Lord, you said you're going to do this. And now look where we are. Did you bring us here to kill us or what? And God says, no, I want you to do this. And then he does that and God works deliverance, but he's not bringing in all the elders and asking them, why isn't he bringing in all the elders? Because at that point, the elders are sheep. They are very as discouraged. They actually know the accounts of what God did in the past. They know all of this, but there is not enough faith in Israel for the children of Israel, uh, there's not enough faith in the whole camp for them to just say, you know what, Pharaoh, we actually belong up there because God promised Abraham and we're going. There wasn't enough faith for them to do that. And so in our time, we will find the children of God spattered all throughout our land. And there's not enough faith for us to understand that there is a will that he has. There is a plan that he has for the kingdom of heaven that is bigger than what might happen with the kingdoms of this earth. And so we hear the voices of the kings of the earth. We hear what they're saying. And as we're hearing it day in, day out, year after year after year, we can fall into that same place where we are captives and we're standing there going, I don't know how to do this. Well, here's how God does this. He takes one of us and he puts us in the presence of our enemies and he feeds us. And he shows us that it is God who is our shepherd, not Pharaoh, not each other, not someone else. So look at Psalm 23 with me. Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to, be, to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So this part I can read and it makes sense. The Lord is my shepherd. He's going to take care of me. He brings me to these green pastures. He's, there's these quiet waters. He, takes me, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This all makes sense to me. But then it gets to this next piece, and, it, and, and this is where you can start losing me, and I think many of us as believers, we start not actually following what's being said. Because he says in verse four, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why am I walking through the valley of the shadow of death? If I'm with the shepherd... 
and he's leading me beside the still waters and he's restoring my soul and there's green pastures. Why am I walking through the valley of the shadow of death? What's up with this? What sort of a shepherd brings his sheep to the valley of the shadow? What is this? I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. See, if you just said you prepare a table before me, I get it. I have been, I have been to my mother's house at Thanksgiving and just growing up and, and coming home from a day's work to, my, to our house and my wife has prepared a table. I understand it. When you love someone and you're providing for them, you put good things on the table that they want. You prepare a table before them. That makes sense. Why are you doing it in the presence of my enemies? What's up with that? And so when we look at this, Psalm 23, while it has some very peaceful sounding things in it, it's pretty rough because it talks about evil. It talks about the valley of the shadow of death. It talks about our enemies. He says, you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I want to just propose something. We live in a broken world. We all know this. I mentioned it before. We've talked about it a lot. There's so many ways to see the obviousness that the world around us is broken. There are things that are problems. We see them and we think, how is it possible for this to be? And we're given several opportunities. One is we can blame God and say, God, you made this world and look at how messed up it is. Another one is for us to understand that there is a God in heaven who created the world. He put us here. And for reasons that we do not fully understand, he, in the Garden of Eden, gave us the power to make decisions that, where we made the wrong decisions. We chose to follow the lies of the enemy, believe the lies of the enemy instead of believe the truth of God. And from that day until now, all of us have been in this broken world. And so in the middle of this brokenness, we either listen, continue listening to the lies of the enemy and how he, in the beginning, those lies continue. And now it seems like the lies have multiplied and there's all these different people talking and there's all these voices we're hearing. And yet there's also the voice of God that is still speaking to us. He is still asking us in the same way that they were walking with God in the cool of the day back in the garden. He is still wanting to walk with us. He wants to know us. He wants us to know him. Now, God is not limited as in that he looks at us and says, I have no idea who that person is. It's more of a question of he wants us to know him. And in the same way that we have delight when our child speaks to us, this is the delight of the father when he is delighted when we speak to him. And so in, if in Pharaoh's, uh, going back to Egypt, if during that time, if the people of Israel had fully understood who they were and what God had said, there were multiple opportunities when they could have said, you know what, we're kind of done being here. Thank you. And they could have left. And if there were more of them, as Pharaoh said, they could have won. But they were not looking at that at this time. They were not understanding this. And so they were stuck there until someone comes along and says, it's time for us to leave. And then everyone kind of says, yeah, I've been thinking about that for a while. I think you're right. And so sometimes we need one voice that is not listening to the lies of the enemy, one voice that is not busy trying to understand how to escape Pharaoh's thing about killing the Hebrews. I don't know what they were worried about by the time Moses came back. There probably were other issues by then. Uh, this, this killing of the Hebrew boys seems to have only been a season of something that was going on. But at some point, 
Someone has to come in and say, I know you've been hearing what Pharaoh's been saying. I know you've been hearing everything that he said. I know you're concerned. You're worried. You're anxious. You're sick of it. You're tired of it. But God is actually telling us something else. And so there is a way, and our God is going to lead us. And who is this person that does this? Well, it's the person that literally sat at Pharaoh's table and ate with the enemy And then he ran from Pharaoh into the wilderness and somewhere in the wilderness, he began to understand that it was the Lord who fed him at the table of his enemies. It wasn't that Pharaoh was so kind and good and then suddenly Pharaoh turned all bad. Pharaoh had been wicked and broken and uncertain and uh, not to be trusted. But when Moses' parents were putting Moses out there, it was not because they were trusting that Pharaoh's daughter or Pharaoh, or anyone else who's going to be so good and righteous, they were literally launching him out there saying, I don't know what else to do. Lord, you're going to have to do something. And so this concept that God can take care of us and protect us in the very presence of our enemies is one that I think we as believers need to meditate on a little bit more from Psalm 23 and say, Lord, how do you do this? Because I will spend huge amounts of time and energy and money to try to figure out how to get away from my enemies. When God says, actually, I brought those people here because they're going to do something to protect you, to feed you, to, and I'm going to show my mighty hand through those people. They're going to, you, yes, it's risky. Yes, Pharaoh is going to hunt you down and try to kill you later. But right now, I want you sitting right there at that table. And while you're sitting at that table, I'm going to take care of you. It's not Pharaoh that's feeding you. I'm feeding you through Pharaoh. And this concept, if you take it to the kingdoms of the earth and how battles work, then we say something like, you know, keep your, what is it? Keep your friends close and your enemies closer, that, that kind of thing. But if you take it to the kingdom of heaven, it just suddenly re- we realize that there's a lot that God is doing. And there's a lot of people that he's looking for. As long as we're listening to the lies of the enemy, we're going to be running in fear, running in fear, running in fear. But the moment that we stop and say, God is able to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He is able to help me walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, Moses was just one report away from being dead as an infant because they bring him when he was being hidden in his mother's house, when he was down there. All it took was someone to say, hey, we've got a Hebrew boy over here and we've got Egyptian soldiers ready to do the work. He was just a slip away and yet God protected him. Brought him, God literally pulled him out of death and preserved him. And so when Moses' daughter named him, it was God himself saying, this is a good name for this guy. I want to use him with this. God didn't feel the need to rename Moses. He kept it, that name because he set it up to where as he's drawn out of the water, he's a, pic, is a picture of him being drawn out of death, a picture of him being drawn out of impossible odds, and he's being drawn out and set in a solid place. And God says, this is the one. I'm going to use this one. So I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know which lies of the enemy you're you're hearing that are being repeated loudly and that are bringing the most fear. But I want you to be asking the Lord, Father, how are you wanting to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? And don't be surprised when someone that comes from the enemy camp suddenly becomes one of the people of God 
and is assisting and helping the people of God. It has happened over and over, you know, famously with, with Saul becoming Paul and, and taking on the whole Apostle Paul thing um, as a, the enemy of the Christians suddenly becomes the, the missionary to the Christians. So thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies is one of the, the most beautiful truths in scripture that we've been given by God and yet it's also one of the ones we can hardly understand and fathom because when we're in the presence of our enemies, it's very, very hard to take our eyes off of the presence of the enemy and to put it on, the, on God and on the fact that he is taking care of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your provision for us. And Lord, I ask that you would show us and help us to know how to keep our eyes fixed on you and to eat at the table that you have spread for us. Because you're a good God and you give good gifts to your children. We are your children. So we want to receive those good gifts from you. So I just ask that you would do that, Lord. You would show us, let us hear your voice and not to be so distracted by the presence of the enemy, the lies of the enemy, that we forget that you are also here and that you have called us to walk with you and that you are doing something. And Father, you've called each of us to do something. You've given us gifts. You've given us callings. You've given us this opportunity to hear your voice. We can read your word. We can pray. We can have fellowship with you. So I pray, Lord, you'd do that for each of us and help us to walk with you. We love you, Father, and are so grateful for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.